You can have a seat. Good morning uh, once again. My name is Elliot. Uh, I'm the pastor here and very glad that you're with us. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, we would love to get to know you. We would love uh, to be known by you. There's some visitor cards in the back and upstairs in the coffee room that you can place in the white boxes on the back or just come introduce, just be a human. You can just introduce yourself. Uh, we'd love to meet you. Um, Matt, Joseph, any of the staff, Lisa, anybody you see around, we'd love to, anybody that doesn't look crazy, introduce yourself too, okay? Um, but we are studying the Apostles' Creed this summer. We have been uh, kind of working through the Apostles' Creed line by line. If you don't know what the Apostles' Creed is, we just said it together. Uh, this is an ancient uh, document, an ancient text from the inception of the church, uh, the apostles in the early churches that were forming in the Mediterranean and in the known world. They would confess this. Anytime there was a baptism, they would baptize someone who was joining uh, the Jesus movement, and they would come out of the water and confess what we just confessed we believe. That literally for over 2,000 years, the church has been saying this confession and saying, this is what we believe. This is what we believe the Bible teaches about the tenets of our faith, the pillars of Christianity. That if you believe in the Bible, regardless of denomination, regardless of geographic location, if you believe in the Bible, you believe what we just confess to believe. It stretches across all forms of Christianity uh, through Catholicism and Episcopalianism, Protestantism, Presbyterianism, non-denominationalism, Baptist. I mean, literally, the, the, it stretches across. This is biblical Christianity, what we just confess. So we're working our way through it, uh, not necessarily preaching the creed, but preaching scripture that proves the creed and what we say we believe. And so we're working through it line by line. We've got three or four more weeks of it. Um, and today is a... Is a doozy. So here we go. Um, here's what we have confessed to believing and worked through uh, the the sermon series so far. Uh, Will, you can throw this up there. We've talked about all of these words so far. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. That's where we have stopped. And typically, that's where people's knowledge of their, their Jesus, that's where people's Christology stops. I believe that Jesus came, was born, suffered, was crucified, was buried, died, rose again, and that's the end of the Jesus story. That's typically where we stop. That's typically, like, that's, that's, where, that's where movies stop. That's where storylines stop. That's typically the end of the story of Jesus. But the authors of the creed, the apostles themselves from the church's inception thought through every line and every word and thought we knew Jesus better than anybody and we know the pillars of our faith because we got it from, from the mouth of Jesus himself. And here's what we know really, really matters is that the end of Jesus' story is not the resurrected Jesus. There's another piece to what we believe about Jesus. In fact, this next line that we're going to talk about today is the last line about Jesus in the whole creed. That the creed kind of works in a Trinitarian way. It deals with God the Father, God the Son, and then next week we'll begin kind of the section that's headed by the, the Holy Spirit. So the end of the, of the creedal confession about Jesus himself is this line today. This is a monumental part of the knowledge of Jesus and what we believe about him. We just don't talk about it very much. And here's what it is. Here's, what did Jesus do next? After he resurrected, did he just like bleed into the ether and then it was done and then we just believe in a resurrected Jesus? What do we believe? 
He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. This line, today's teaching, is about this oft-neglected, oft-forgotten piece of our Christology, which is that we believe that after he was born, after he suffered and taught, after he was crucified and dead and buried, and after he resurrected, Jesus did something equally as important. He ascended to the Father's right hand. This is the doctrine of the ascension. So we have Christmas. We have cards for Christmas. We got traditions for Christmas. We have crosses everywhere. We have Easter Rarely is there any fuss made about the ascension of Jesus. And the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's gospel kind of alludes to it. Jesus says, after he's resurrected, I must go ascend to the Father. But John doesn't give us an account of the ascension of Jesus. Matthew and Mark don't even mention it. And then Luke, the third gospel writer, Luke wrote a two-parter. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, and then Luke wrote the book of Acts. And he says at the beginning of both books, he wrote it for the same person. He wrote it for one man named Theopolis. Luke was trying to give this historical account of the life of Jesus, and he wrote it to this man named Theopolis. So he does all this research, all this, inter- all this eyewitness interviewing, and then he produces this two-parter, 1A and 1B, the book of, Luke's and the, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke-Acts is one book. And in that one book, part one and part two, Luke mentions and gives an account of the ascension twice. He does it in his last chapter of Luke, Luke 24, and then the first chapter of the book of Acts. Luke talks about the ascension twice. It's that vital to Luke's Christology. You need to know about Jesus. If you really want to know about Jesus, you really need to know about the ascension. Why do you do that? Well, just as it would be silly if you you were working in highway construction Anybody doing that? I'm not making fun of it, but anybody do it? Great, nobody. So if you're working in highway construction, that means I can talk about it and you can't challenge what I'm gonna say because you don't know if it's true or not. But if you're working in highway construction and you were going to build this giant bomb to blow a hole in the side of a mountain to build a highway through and you had to get rid of all this rock, you would need this giant bomb and you could build it and construct it and move it to its proper location. But if you didn't have a detonator, the bomb would be no good. Very similarly, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is a bomb, and it's loaded with power. But the the detonator is the ascension. The ascension of Jesus releases the power of Jesus into the universe. It's not contained anymore with just Jesus, the physical person walking in Galilee. The power and the healing and the shalom and the peace of the work and ministry of Jesus is detonated by the ascension. The ascension takes what Jesus was, who he was, and what he did on earth, and it releases it into the universe and into your life. The ascension is vital. So let's look at it. We've got three passages we're going to look at, and I'm kind of hopping around the New Testament, three passages that give us a window into what the ascension means for us. You are free to try to do a sword drill and beat me there, but just trust me, I'm not making this up. You won't get there before I get there, so just read along with me on the screen. The first passage is this, Acts chapter 1. This is Luke's second account of the ascension. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6, says this. So when they, that's the apostles, had come together, they asked him, that's Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You're resurrected, are you going to bring the kingdom now? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. He ascended and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, now Ephesians chapter one, this is one of the applications, the realities of the ascended Jesus. Ephesians chapter one is a giant run-on sentence. We're gonna pick up that sentence uh, in verse 19 for three verses, 19 through 21. It says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, that's the Lord's power, toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And now another reality of this role of Jesus, the ascended king, Acts chapter 10 Go back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, a few verses starting in verse 39. This is, the apostles are preaching this sermon and this is what they're explaining they believe about Jesus. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Amen, this is the word of the Lord. Okay, a lot to cover. We're not gonna pick apart all three of those passages. Trying to, I mean, we could have, I was literally with Joseph this week trying to plan this service and we had to whittle down. I had like 15 passages and there's many more, there's dozens more that try to get at the heart of what's going on with the ascension of Jesus and what is this line from our creed. And the first thing to note is what we mean when we say Jesus ascended. What do we mean when we say that? What does the Bible mean when it says that? We live in a democracy, most days, but kingdoms are different. Kingdoms are different. One main difference between a kingdom and a democracy is that there are thrones in kingdoms. There are kings in kingdoms. And you don't get to vote your least favorite king out. He is a king until he is overthrown or until he decides that it is no longer his right to be king and he dies. And here's what this means that Jesus is a king in a kingdom. Any king or queen in, in the kingdom that they rule, they sit on a throne. And that throne, that chair, is always literally, and, and not accidentally, ascended. It is higher up than any other chair in the land. And you literally, physically, have to walk up steps to get to the throne of a kingdom, the chair that the king would sit in. And so part of the ascension is literal. Like, and that's what Acts chapter one tells you. He literally went up, he ascended up, physically went up. But merely sitting down in a throne, like if you and I could visit some kingdom that still existed, we could find a throne and, and the king or the queen let us go, hey, would you like to pretend for a moment and ascend up these steps and pretend to sit in this throne? If you ascended up those steps and you sit in that throne, it makes no difference because the throne is not yours. 
but it makes a big difference if it's your right to be king or queen and you ascend up those steps and you sit down in the chair. And this is the point of the ascension. This is the point of what Jesus did in Acts chapter one and what the New Testament makes so clear about his ascension. The seat that he's sitting on is his throne. And the moment that a king or a queen sits down in their throne, their relationship to their kingdom and to their people changes radically. The ascension is not Jesus's return trip to heaven where he's hiding out for a little bit until he makes a glorious return. This is Jesus taking his seat on a throne, his throne. That was the passage from Ephesians chapter one. We could have read lots of passages that use this exact language. I chose Ephesians one. Here's what it says about him. That God seated him, Jesus seated him in a seat at his right hand in the heavenly places. And what does that seat mean? Next line, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The ascension does not describe Jesus's absence from the world. The ascension describes Jesus's sovereign position over the world. Jesus has not gone up to the attic like you know, the Bluth granddad, George Bluth, that goes up to like the attic and like no one, anybody, sorry. Arrested Development, is that still in? I love it. But George Bluth goes up to the attic and no one knows where he is. And it's like, oh, granddad is gone, but he's really just hiding in the attic. That's not Jesus. Jesus is not up in the attic where you can't see him and he's having no effect. Jesus has been seated on a throne. The ascension of Jesus at the right hand of the Father is his public enthronement over all worldly powers. The ascension is not Jesus' loss of leadership, his loss of power, his loss of protection. The ascension of Jesus is the infinite magnification of those things. He is sitting on a throne, and it's his throne, and he was placed there, and he ascended to it. When Ephesians says that phrase, Ephesians plucks this phrase out and says, Paul does it in Ephesians 1, he does it lots of other places, that he's seated at God's right hand. That phrase was not invented by Paul. It was original to the Old Testament. It's not original to the New Testament. Seated at God's right hand is a line directly plucked out of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a royal psalm. We read it in our call to worship. Psalm 110 is a psalm written by David about the glorious king over God's people. And it talks, that's the opening line, Psalm 110, verse one. And the opening line of Psalm 110 says that the king over God's people will sit at the right hand of God the, God the Father Almighty. He will sit in power in that seat. Seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty is referring to Israel's glorious king. When David wrote that psalm, though, everybody thought David was being a little egotistical and was writing the psalm about himself. David was Israel's greatest king. David brought shalom to the kingdom. He defeated God's enemies. He brought peace. He expanded the borders. And there was peace in God's kingdom. And so David writes this psalm about the king over God's people. God's glorious king over God's glorious people will sit at God's right hand and he will be placed there and he will rule from that place. But then if you keep reading, you realize, wait, 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 wait. This psalm is not just talking about some glorious king who has military victory. This Psalm 110 is talking about this glorious king who not just has victory over his enemies, but he brings judgment to the world. And he's a high priest for his own. Who is this mystical, majestical character that is not just a king, but is a glorious global king? And also the king of Psalm 110 never dies. And so how does 
David is writing this psalm about, man, I know I'm, I'm, an, I'm a great king in Israel, but there's a king coming that's better than me. There's a king coming, actually there's a king coming that's been promised to me in 2 Samuel chapter seven. This psalm is not about David. And that confusion of, wait, wait, we thought Psalm 10 was about David. We thought Psalm 10, if it wasn't gonna be about David, maybe it was about Solomon. We thought Psalm 110 was gonna be about this glorious king who would sit on Israel's throne. Where is that king? The New Testament clears up all of that confusion. Psalm 110 wasn't talking about David. It was talking about Jesus. In fact, the New Testament is so adamant that the reader and the people know that Psalm 110 is not about David, but written about Jesus, the future king of Israel, that Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Nothing is referred to more in the New Testament than Psalm 110. And guess what Psalm 110 is all about? Jesus because he's seated at the right hand of God the Father and he's ruling in power. 25 times the New Testament wants you to know Psalm 110 is not about David, it's about Jesus. Every New Testament writer lets you know Psalm 110 was not about David, it was about Jesus. Jesus is the king who is seated at the right hand of God and how did he get to that place? He ascended to it like a king taking his throne. It's a seat of power, it's a seat of protection, it's a seat of victory. It's a seat that represents the defeat of God's enemy. And the New Testament is very clear. Ephesians 1 is just one of the 25 places we could have gone to that says that's the seat that Jesus is sitting in right now. Jesus is on the throne of the universe right now. That's the position he's in right now. Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and then do not forget, church, he ascended. And since he ascended, the New Testament wants you to know 25 times over, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Meaning, Jesus, right now, as the ascended king, is currently ruling, he's currently in control, he's currently victorious, he's not afraid, he is ruling the cosmos at the right hand of God the Father. And the early church knew that the church needed to know that. It's a critical piece, his ascended seat. What did he ascend to? A throne. Jesus is the ascended king. That's part one, but that's not it. Because when the Bible talks about the ascension that Jesus ascends to a throne, he's ruling in power, he's seated at God's mighty right hand and he's ruling the cosmos over his enemies. We have to remember that in ancient times, the way that imagery works is that you don't have a separation of powers in the ancient world. There isn't Congress and the Supreme Court and the executive branch, the White House. There aren't three rulers, three ruling bodies in the ancient world. Throne rooms in the ancient world were also courtrooms. Kings were judges. And so for the ascension of Jesus to mean that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he's the king over the cosmos and he ascended to his throne, it also means not only do you have a king in power, you have a king in power that's also a judge. This is why this is a part of our line of our confession. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, from that place of having a crown on his head and ruling from his throne, he will come to judge the living and the dead. He will come to judge. Jesus, the judge. Nobody likes this title of Jesus. This is not our favorite image of Jesus. Jesus, the judge. The early church, the apostles in our creed needed us to know because the Bible needs us to know Jesus from his throne will come to judge. 
The throne was the place where the king or the queen not only sat in a place of power, but sat in a place of justice. If you were experiencing injustice in the ancient world, you didn't hire a lawyer and go to a courthouse. You hired a friend and went to the throne room. I need you, king or queen, to rule on my behalf and bring me justice. Only you have the power to bring me justice. Only you can rule what is just and what is unjust, king or queen. Because throne rooms were courtroom. So when we say that Jesus is the king of the cosmos, at the same time, what the Bible is very clear about is he is also the judge of all the earth. We don't like this. Give me Christmas Jesus, give me baby Jesus, like Ricky Bobby, like give me the Jesus that I wanna see, give me, give me the version of Jesus that I like to have. Give me healing Jesus, give me walking on water Jesus, give me Jesus with the woman by the well. Give me even crucified and resurrected Jesus. I can deal with all of those versions of Jesus. Do not give me Jesus the judge. Unless... Unless the one who's coming to judge is also full of righteousness. Unless the one that's coming to judge is full of justice. This does not take much convincing. This is what we all want. Whenever justices are elected at the local or national level, and I'm not making any comment on what your opinion is of the people and the justices that have been put in place. What I'm saying is what everybody wants on both sides of the aisle is this. Give me a judge that will judge in righteousness. Give me a judge that will not be tossed to and fro by cultural moments. Give me a judge that will not be based on bribery or race or coercion. Give me a judge that will make his decisions on justice and beauty and goodness in the land on righteousness. I need a judge, we need a judge who will judge what is under their jurisdiction with righteousness and justice. Please bring justice where there is no justice, please. That's what we all want. Now, we can all disagree on what we think that means, but here's what we know. Give me a righteous judge, please. And what the confession says and what the Bible says is that you have a righteous king, and because he is a righteous king, he is also a righteous judge. He is full of justice. He is full of righteousness. And when he returns, he will bring that justice with him. When he comes, he will judge the earth. In other words, he will make right what has been wrong. He will bring justice where there has been oppression. And here's where it gets really good. We confess this part. This is in the confession. He will return to judge the living and the dead. Do you know what that means? That means that he's not just gonna judge the present moment at his return, the living. He's gonna judge the dead. He's gonna judge the past. So everything in all of human history leading up to that point, he is going to judge all of human timeline. He's going to judge every second and every action and every thought, and he will bring judgment to the living and the dead. A righteous king who is coming to judge is good news. Do you know why? Because it means that you have a king who's coming to judge, and he will deal with evil. It means that darkness and destruction will not go unpunished. It means that the wicked and the vile will meet vengeance. It means that perpetrators of injustice will not always gloat. You want that. I want that. The world is crying out for that to be real. Will someone come and bring justice where there is no justice? Will someone come and rule in equity? Will someone come and let justice roll down and for all the perpetrators of injustice to have to pay for what they've done? This is built into our DNA. 
to know that the detestable things of the world, what's been done to you, will have to stand and face judgment one day. The head and the heart, yes? New record, anybody? Yes, no? I'm back on the train, y'all. It's great. Deeper Shade of Blue, their new song, Hurt, Hurt, but it goes away in parentheses. Listen to what they say in this, in this crying out. And I don't know if they're Christians. They probably are after this song, but I don't know that. I can't prove it. But here's what they say. Tell me I'm gonna be okay. Tell me that life's gonna find a way. Tell me it hurts, but it goes away. Tell me it hurts, but it goes away. Tell me I'm gonna be all right. Tell me we're gonna find a light. Tell me it hurts, but it goes away. Is it gonna be okay? Does it hurt and is the hurt gonna go away? Is it all going to be okay? Does the hurt actually disappear? Does justice actually come? Does the bitterness actually go away? Does the rage actually go away? Can you look at the head and the heart and tell them? Can you answer their question? Tell me it hurts now, but it's going to go away one day. Tell me that. You can't tell them that unless you have a king who's coming to judge with justice. Did any of you watch, and I'm not recommending that you did, did any of you watch the security footage from the Uvalde shooting? It was horrific. It was like watching demons on film. It was evil. It was pure evil. I couldn't watch all of it. And for now, it seems like evil has won again. It seems like darkness has won the day and nothing is going to be done to stop the darkness from winning forever. It seems like there is no recompense for that horror. It's awful. I don't encourage you to go watch it, but it, you cannot watch it and not believe that there's evil in the world. And guess what everybody wants? Because it, it feels like, how does that keep winning? How does evil, and it you could, I'm just taking that storyline. There's, there's dozens of them, like in the last month, that you could go, how, is this, how are people getting away with this evil? How is this just happening and no one's doing anything about it? I believe that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead means you have a king that's coming and he's going to deal with that evil. He's gonna judge it. He's gonna bring justice to it. And the hope of the Christian is that Jesus is the king in power sitting on his throne, but he's also the judge that will come and deal with all the evil. This is start to finish in scripture, the hope of any Christians, Old and New Testament, anybody that belongs to the people of God since the beginning of time has always been comforted and has always been told to place your hope in a future day of judgment. Not place your fear in it, but place your hope in it. We don't, think, we don't tend to think about hoping in Jesus the judge, but the Bible is realistic enough to us to know this, to explain to us this. Even if the wrongs done to you and the wrongs done in the world get justice now, it may not be enough. And it may not feel like justice is winning out. And so for victims of injustice, they are called through scripture and through Jesus to place their hope in a future judgment. This is start to finish, Old and New Testament. Moses, David, Jesus, Paul, all of them say this, vengeance belongs to the Lord. You don't have to get it now. You don't have to make sure justice happens right now. But one is coming who will bring vengeance to the unjust, who will bring justice because he will come and he will judge the living and the dead. And it's not meant to be a threat to you. It is a threat to some, but it's not meant to be a threat. It's meant to be a comfort your God cares more about injustice than you do. 
And what's he going to do about it? He's going to deal with it one day, like a righteous king who brings justice. Because the injustices done here were done to the world and the people that he made and he delighted in. He will not let evil gloat forever. Jesus the king is also Jesus the judge. And vengeance belongs to the Lord. This is from the African slave trade to the wrongfully accused to the sexually abused. You have a king who's coming to judge and vengeance belongs to him. It's the comfort of the Christian. Your king cares about injustice. Your king cares about evil being done in the world. He's coming to judge the living and the dead and vengeance belongs to him. That's good news. When we confess that line of our creed that I believe he ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's meant to give you hope. There's just one little problem with it. That is, if Jesus is gonna deal with evil, he's gonna have to deal with me. And here's what we tend to do with all the horrors, with all the headlines of evil that is so clearly evil, with all, the, with all the issues and with all the comment sections of all the postings and all the, it's so easy. It's so easy. We love to do this. We love to draw this line of good and evil, and evil is always out there. I love to draw the line of where evil is, and I'll just save you some time, Jesus. I can already just draw the line for you. You don't have to do it when you get back. I'll do it for you right now. Here's the line, and evil's out there, and I'm on this side. I'm not on the side of evil, but let me help you draw the line. It's always a distinction between us and them. But almost as unpopular as the image of Jesus the judge, it's not a super popular image, almost as unpopular as that is the Christian confession that we as a people, we, we as a race, we as a species are guilty. But man, we've tried our hardest to rid ourselves of our guilt. I mean, we, we've tried really hard to not let that distinction get blurry. We've tried to rid ourselves of our guilt, but we just can't shake it. In fact, it was one of, if not the war cry of modernity like the modern era. And now we're post-modernity, post-modern era, like welcome to modernity where the goal was to rid people of their guilt. And here's how it started. Here's, here's the timeline. Thank you, enlightenment, but here's how it goes. Man, people are crushed by this oppressive guilt. Surely God wouldn't want us to feel this way, right? And so we can rid, Freud said this. Freud said if we could rid people of our guilt, guilt is the number one problem from stopping people to creating a flourishing society. So let's just stop people from feeling guilty. And here's the way we'll do that. We'll just rid ourselves of religion because religion has passed down this oppressive, false sense of guilt. And so you don't need to feel guilty. And so for the last like 200 years, people have been trying to rid themselves of religion so that we can rid, them, we can rid ourselves as a culture and society of our guilt. We've moved on from religion and dang it if there isn't this strange persistence of guilt. You are not living in a religious era anymore. Welcome to the secular age. You cannot blame religion anymore for your guilt. It's not the ocean we're swimming in anymore. Then why do we all still feel guilty? 
even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe in God, deep down you know there is a bar of justice that you should be living up to, you should be hitting the standards, and deep down you know you, not, you, know you don't only not only live up to the standards of society that the universe has created, you don't even live up to your own standards of justice and rightness and morality. We can't do it. So we have this strange persistence of guilt. And so because we have this strange persistence of guilt, we get desperate and hasty and busy trying to get a bunch of miniature verdicts to rid me of my guilt. Tell me I'm okay. Tell me I'm good. Tell, tell, me, I'm do, tell me I'm good. Tell me, tell, me that it's, tell me that I'm not that bad. So whether it's parents or bosses or spouses, give me a verdict that declares me good. We know there's something wrong with us. We know we're not good. We know we're not living up. And so everybody I know on some level feels like they have imposter syndrome. I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I can't do it. I know the beauty I wanna create. I know the way I'm supposed to treat my spouse. I know the way I'm supposed to treat my neighbor. I know the way I'm supposed to serve the poor. I know the way I'm supposed to view the world, but I can't do it. And again, the biblical declaration, almost as unique and as unpopular as the promise of Jesus the judge is the place where the Bible draws the line of where evil is. In the words of my theological crush, Fleming Rutledge, my wife's cool with it, she's almost 90, she says this, there's a line that runs through each person. The line of evil runs through each person. Evil is not out there. It is out there. It's not only out there. And you don't get to draw the line. Guess where the Bible puts the line? In you. And so as much as we could sing out with the head and the heart and say, tell me it hurts, but it's gonna be okay. Tell me it hurts, but it goes away. Tell me that all this is gonna be okay. Jesus the judge says it is gonna be okay because I'm a king that rules injustice and I'm gonna come and I'm gonna deal with evil. If that's the hope of the world, of a king who's coming to judge, what's that gonna do to you? What will you do when the king comes to judge? Well, as much as the New Testament talks about Jesus ascending to his throne 25 times over, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And as much as it talks about him one day returning to judge the living and the dead, the dreadful day of judgment, it also talks about constantly that Jesus didn't just ascend to be a king. Jesus didn't just ascend to one day return to judge. Jesus ascended so that he could constantly be your priest. The ascended Jesus is the king who's the judge, and the king and the judge is also your great high priest. A priest, as in the one in the Old Testament who stood before God and man and interceded for them, mediated for the people of God by slaughtering a spotless animal on behalf of the people, and then would plead as the mediator, God, in your justice, in your righteousness, do not require bloodshed from the sinner. Take the bloodshed of this animal as atonement for the sin of this person. That's the role of the priest. And over and over and over and over again, mostly in the book of Hebrews, the New Testament says that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, kingly language, and now in that same seat, he is also the great high priest of his people. One more passage for you, Hebrews chapter 10, Will, says this. 
And every priest, this is human priest, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never really take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, kingly language, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Your king is not just the judge. Your king is also your high priest. But unlike human high priest who had to, like we were read in verse 11, had to continually offer blood sacrifices because it could never fully atone for the sin of the people, unlike a human high priest who had to continually offer sacrifices, Jesus offered one sacrifice. Which one was that? His. And as the high priest, what did his single sacrifice accomplish? Verse 14, throw it back up there. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me tell you what verse 14 just told you. The sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf because he is a perfect king, his sacrifice made you perfect. Perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly acquitted. You are perfectly righteous in the heavenly throne room, which means you are perfectly righteous in the heavenly courtroom. Which means, this, this, this is such a category-shifting reality if you understand that your great high king who ascended to his throne is not just the judge who's coming back, but he's also the priest that atoned for you. That when Jesus, your priest, is interceding for you and pleading the blood of the sacrifice for you, he's not standing up there in the courtroom pleading mercy for you. I know it's crazy. He's not up there pleading mercy for you in your sin. Because of what Jesus has done, his blood has already, once and for all, by a single sacrifice, paid for your sin. He has already satisfied the law's demands. He has already accomplished what you never could. His sacrifice, what did verse 14 say? Has made you perfect in the heavenly courts. And so when Jesus pleads for you like a great high priest that he is, he doesn't plead mercy for you. He pleads justice for you. He pleads with the Father because of his blood, treat my people like they deserve to be treated now. Show them perfect justice because you are a God of justice and a righteous judge. Show them justice. And what would be justice? What would a judge say to someone who's perfect, who's done no wrong? What do you get if you have nothing to hold you? You don't need mercy if you haven't done anything and the blood of Jesus has made you perfect And so because of the blood of Jesus, Jesus now pleads justice for you. 1 John 1, 9, if we sin, when we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Not faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. He's not going, another, I gotta gotta pay for this again? No, he's faithful and just, like full of justice in order to forgive you. Because it's just for him, it's righteous for him to look at you and not make you pay for any sins. Why? Because Jesus has already paid for them. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when I sin, when I sin, the ascended high priest Jesus, who is the king and is the judge, this is what he says to the father. Father, Elliot did it again. He did it last night. He did it this morning. 
He did it while he was preaching. Like he did it, he did it again. But Father, I'm not asking you to show him mercy. My blood has already paid for that sin. Look at my blood, look at my body broken for him. It's already been paid for. God, show Elliot justice because you will not require debt to be paid after it's already been paid off. You're a God of justice. I'm not asking for mercy for Elliot. I'm asking for justice for him. Treat him as he deserves now because of what my blood has paid for for him. So yes, Christian, the line of evil that runs through each person does run through you. But the evil that's in you has already been atoned and paid for by your king and by your judge. Can you imagine the courtroom setting where the judge has every right to come down with his gavel on what you have done and before the judge hits the gavel to send you off and require blood from you, he gets off of his seat and comes down and advocates for you and says, do not treat this one as their sins deserve. Treat them as my blood deserves, which has paid for their sin. For by one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when justice comes, when justice rolls down, when the king who is the judge will come and judge the earth, your priest's blood will put you on the side of justice and you will be welcomed into the kingdom. The judge that's coming is also your advocate. This is why the gospel is good news. The ascended Jesus is your king. The ascended Jesus is your judge who is returning to judge the living and the dead. But the ascended Jesus is also your great high priest. So you have nothing to fear on judgment day because you are guilty no more. Let's pray. Jesus, King Jesus, Jesus the judge and Jesus the priest, what a mysterious character you are and yet Psalm 110 holds all that together the great the great king seated next to the father the great priest from an order that is heavenly and the great judge who will rule with his scepter to make the world right again we don't understand all of that but your bible says we can know it we can know who you are because of what you've done And so Jesus would you guide us now as we confess our sin to you would you guide us now as we rejoice at what our king, our judge, and our priest has done for us. Let's go listen to your name, Jesus. Amen.